Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast Uncuff India by One Future Collective. My name is Sanchi and my pronouns are she her. My name is Atanshi and my pronouns are she and her. We are your hosts today and it's so good to have you all listening in. In this episode, we will attempt to understand the gendered notions of state-sponsored violence in the form of war. particularly through an assessment of the ways in which it affects different genders particularly gender minorities as both victims and agents of this violence we will also discuss the role of gender minorities in peacemaking and in peacekeeping yes thanks atanshi we know that states and state agencies are ultimately drawn from and therefore extensions of existing unequal social systems in practice this can look like heightened forms of violence which stem from the socio political and cultural sanctioning of the actions of these agencies in these circumstances what does it mean for people with multiple vulnerabilities to challenge perpetrating agents It is these themes that we try to understand today. To discuss this and to share their insights because of their research and in the context of their own background, we have with us Athar Zia. Athar is a political anthropologist, poet, short fiction writer and columnist. She is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and Gender Studies program at the University of Northern Colorado, Greeley. Athar is the author of Resisting Disappearances: Military Occupation and Women's Activism in Kashmir, which won the 2020 Gloria Anzaldúa Honorable Mention Award, 2021 Public Anthropologist Award, and the Advocate of the Year Award in 2021. She has been featured in the Femme List 2021, a list of 100 women from the global south working on critical issues. She is the co-editor of Can You Hear Kashmiri Women Speak, Women Unlimited 2020, Resisting Occupation in Kashmir, and A Desolation Called Peace. She has published a poetry collection, The Frame, and another collection is forthcoming. Athar's ethnographic poetry on Kashmir has won an award from the Society for Humanistic Anthropology. She is the founder editor of Kashmir Lit and is the co-founder of Critical Kashmir Studies Collective, an interdisciplinary network of scholars working on the Kashmir region. Athar, thank you so much for taking the time out to be able to have this extremely important conversation with us. We're very excited to learn from you and to hear from you over the course of this episode, and we really want to welcome you here. Thank you so much, Atanshi and Sanchi, <clears throat> for inviting me. I'm really glad to be in conversation with you and uh, looking forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Athar. Thanks a lot for making the time to join us today. We are absolutely delighted to have you for this conversation. And uh, let's begin right away. And to understand the gendering of war, um, Athar, maybe you could first have us look at warfare itself. So, can you tell us a bit about the nature of warfare and shed some light on maybe the sites where this can occur? What is a state of war, and how has what we define as war changed over the decades? And can we necessarily see war and peace as strict categories anymore? Mm-hmm. That's a very important question, Sanchi. I think, especially in uh, context of Kashmir, we really need to see where the battlefield begins and where the sort of like you know the home and the hearth uh, starts, or are they just meshed into each other? So, if you think about Kashmir from 1947 onwards, I'm going to take about talk about the case study of Kashmir. <clears throat> if you look at what's been happening after 1947 when the two countries were created and when Kashmir emerges 
as a, a dispute between the two uh, countries, but also uh, through the eyes of its own people who wanted self-determination. And when this issue goes to United Nations, what happens after inside Kashmir also forces us to think in the larger context of when we think about war and violence and battlefronts, it really forces us to think about what does war look like, especially in the modern quote-unquote what is known as the post-colonial era. Is it just soldiers? Is it just, you know, battles between two armies? Or does it really spill into civilian populations? And does it uh, spill into everyday life? And I think that's what's happened in Kashmir. You know, a lot of people, when they think about Kashmir or they talk about Kashmir, they're like, everything was good before 1989. And most of the times you'll see that a lot of people uh, make 1989 a milestone year for the armed violence, uh, which started in 1989, and then it kind of became, quote-unquote, what they say, violent. But I don't think that's necessarily the case, and that makes us think about the idea of peace as is peace absence of uh, immediate and direct um, state and military violence. Is that what we call peace, or does... Uh, and uh, and also the fact that, you know, what was happening inside Kashmir after 1947 was also the utilization of or the weaponization of democracy or democratic symbols, especially electoral, uh, the the process of elections and all of that. So I'll uh, I'll try to talk a little bit about that uh, because that gives us a perspective into how you can have a war happening. And this can be so invisible, and people are not even going to fathom uh, what exactly is happening to these people who kind of uh, rise into this armed struggle in 1989, and with most of the political analysts, especially in India, saying everything was good before that. So that's something that we need to understand. So right after the creation of two countries uh, in 1947, Kashmir emerges as a dispute between the two, of course, but also through the eyes of Kashmiris who had seen themselves as part of some sort of a sovereign uh, democracy where they probably had some kind of a deal with the monarch who was ruling them, but they were also a separate nation. So what happens in that moment is very important uh, because we also see right from the get-go the weaponization of democracy that India did. And for the next 74 years, it was able to tell the rest of the world, and it still is, that we are doing, or quote-unquote, we are being very democratic inside Kashmir, despite the fact that there is there are several laws in place that suspend the civilian administration. Um, which for all practical purposes is a client-politician administration. So what happens in 1947, let's kind of jump to 1951 when India decides to hold the elections with the help of client-politicians. And at that moment, the United Nations says that you can't hold elections in a place that is disputed and that is sub-judice. But India goes ahead anyway, says that uh, we're going to do the plebiscite. Now, the people have been forced into uh, partaking in the elections, and the client politicians are the nominees. They are the ones who are going to be um, the politicians of the future. But all of this is done in the name of governance, that these disputed territories, uh, both both of them, need uh, elections and they need to be governed. And that's when the actual violence starts happening. 
no one really talks about elections as violence. But I think when you think about Kashmir, the very weaponization of de- democracy and symbols of democracy, they become very violent. When you ask a pu- people who, for all practical purposes, is living in a disputed territory to partake in elections, and telling them that this is going to be for governance, your politics of self-determination still stays. But the moment those elections happen, the moment that, uh, quote-unquote, the government is elected, something else starts happening, which is coups and, uh, you know, rigging starts happening. The uh, people who took part in elections, the client politicians, they are thrown into jails. So that is Kashmiri destiny with India from 1947 through 60s, through uh, even 50s and 60s and early 70s. And you see this politics of coercion happening. And you see on the other side, you see the civil administration also utilizing symbols of democracy, not just democracy, but also feminism as state feminism. And then bringing that all together and telling the rest of the world that we are actually conducting and we are executing democracy inside Kashmir because we are holding elections and not making it seem like the battlefront it is because now they are playing with the hearts and the minds. They are trying to uh, win people onto their sides. And that's kind of the battle that India was fighting. But it also had military inside Kashmir, which was already doing the direct military aggression. It was already occupying lands. If, at the, if uh, from 1947 onwards till this present moment, uh, the amount of land that is occupied by the Indian military, it's the size of Dallas. Uh, that's kind of like, and the entire Kashmir is the state of Utah, slightly uh, smaller, and maybe, you know, uh, as big as Britain. So you can kind of guess how much state, is, how much land is occupied by the army. And that's something that we really need to consider, like, how does battlefront, how does a battle look like uh, inside a situation like this? And I think the bigger question there also is, what does post-colonialism look like for places like Kashmir? I think that's the bigger question. Uh, does it even hold? Does it even a val- Is it even a valid school of thought for places like Kashmir? Because when we talk about post-colonialism, I think one of the most um, violences that has occurred to peoples like Kashmiris is that post-colonialism hasn't even talked about them. So it's completely quiet about such situations. So should we say before 1989 that there was no, uh, there was peace? What kind of peace was it? If you are doing this with the people, you're steadily, sorry, you're steadily criminalizing their movement for plebiscite or self-determination. At the same time, you are engineering uh, consent and you're putting laws into place that is going to be right from 1949 itself, even 47 itself, that's going to put them behind bars for even asking the questions about plebiscite or self-determination. But you're not actively, seemingly uh, battling them because they, don't, they haven't taken up arms. So in 1989, when Kashmiris actually take up arms, also because of a lot of geopolitics that's happening, and they also took up arms in the 60s, but that movement was kind of suppressed within a within a decade. Are we kind of saying that the armed violence is now erupting and Kashmiris are violent, or are we saying, if we look at through look at it through the lens of 
uh, what was happening from 1947 onwards, is this something that they have been pushed into corner <clears throat> and now they are taking up arms. So I think when we look at war and battle and violence through such a lens where a democracy, quote unquote, India, is trying to corral these people into uh, c consenting for integration. How do we see pre-1989 and how do we see from 1989 till this point in time? I think there's a lot of questions that arise as to what violence is and how violence can look like. Sometimes the absence of direct violence might be construed as peace and quiet and calm and normalcy, but it is not because you are doing violence by other means while having a direct military aggressor in the region as well. I know that's a long answer, but nothing is short about Kashmir. When we talk about Kashmir, you really have to talk about a lot. Thank you so much for that, uh, Athar. And just while you were speaking, I'm really interested to hear more about how the definition itself has changed over the years and how, you know, and I'm just thinking someone who's done law, etc. as well, is just how this also becomes a way for us to move away from the protections available under, quote-unquote, you know, which can be available under a wartime situation. When the meaning of war itself changes and when what war itself looks like changes, these protections also become very uh, difficult to be able to grasp and to imply and to ask for as a matter of right which then also makes me think you know war is generally seen as a larger universal phenomenon do you think that these situations also affect people of different gender identities differently women queer folks do you think that there is a difference in how we perceive it and how it impacts us and is there a difference in how we you know is there a difference in the public sphere is there a difference in the private sphere of how different genders experience and deal with the impact of war i think the impact of war on genders definitely uh, all genders experience it in a different manner uh, because the social status, each of the gender, the political status, social, intellectual, economic status that genders inhabit, they are different. And mostly women are the most vulnerable. Old people are very vulnerable. Children are very vulnerable in a war. So I, I can, again, you know, looking from the lens of Kashmir, I do want to just flag this uh answer that I'm about to give by saying that the Eurocentric academia or the Eurocentric school of thought often pushes us to think about gendered ways or gendered impacts of war as if the genders are, you know, inhabiting different spaces, even though they are at so different social political hierarchy. But at the same time, our societies you know, I'd like to, I like to see our societies as South Asian societies. I think even if we are different countries, we are different peoples and cultures, there is a rubric that we share. There are close-knit communities where men and women, they exist and coexist in different ways. Of course, there's a patriarchal structure where <clears throat> the men, <clears throat> they're hierarchically and ha are stronger uh, and they have a lot of power over women. They have a lot of power over old people and children and that is true for all our societies. So in that sense, yes, the impact of war and the way war is felt and experienced is different. But we also have to understand when war comes to a certain community like it did in Kashmir, the first 
a victim and the first discrimination that it did bodily was against men. I'll give you the example of the disappeared, the forcibly disappeared. In Kashmir, we have more than 10,000 disappearances currently. And these are men who have been, and mostly men, majority of them Muslim men who were bearded from 35, uh, from 8 to 35 to 40. So what you see there happening is that these men were, they left early in the morning. Some of them were combatants, some, most of them were non-combatants. They left in the morning, never returned, maybe detained, jailed, killed, imprisoned, we don't know. So I get asked this question a lot like, uh, so there's this movement called Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, which was founded by a mother and a human rights lawyer, the mother whose son, Parvina Ahangar, whose son was disappeared by the Indian Army. And it's been a strong movement for the last 33 years. Uh, and the question that gets asked about is the gendered resistance and the gendered impact of violence. Women suffer a double bind, you know. They have to fight the occupation, they have to fight the patriarchal military industrial complex, which is disappearing their men. And then they also have to fight the society because they have to push through certain societal norms to really become active and become these activists, which they have in the last 30 years. But at the same time, I always remind people and my students and whoever I'm talking to, that we have to understand that societies in South Asia, we experience war as communities, which is also true for other places. It's the men who were disappeared and women who were pushed into public. So the first and foremost impact is kind of like the men were taken away. So a lot of people are like, so this is not a feminist movement, APDP, because these are women, they're looking for their old patriarchal structures to be back, like their husband to be back, their father to be back. So is that what it is? It's not a feminist movement. And that kind of like pushes us to think further, like what does feminism mean for our societies? Because I think for a long time, and and not for the lack of decolonial literature that has been uh, making rounds in the last 10, 15 years, where we are thinking through our own cultures as to what feminism means for our culture, as what decolonization means for our culture. I think if you look at through those lenses, <clears throat> there is a lot more generative debate that can occur. And also we can kind of uh, think through our own cultural problems because war also is a cultural problem. You might use the same technology that the Israeli settler state uses in Palestine as India does in Kashmir. You might use the same uh, war uh, technologies that uh, you know American imperialism uses in the rest of the world, more than 100 conflicts and violences and wars that it's been part of. So, But at the same time, war is very cultural. How do people uh, experience war? War also becomes culture. It's like in Kashmir, war has become, it's an invisible war. It has different names. People call it um, unconventional war. They call it a low protected conflict. They call it conflict. They call it dispute. But I really like to see it as a war that's happening. It's an everyday war. It's a new not a very new, but a very cultural notion of war where people prepare for the war every day. They go out of their homes. They know they are facing a certain situation. They know they can't move freely. They have bunkers. They have checkpoints. So it's a very sensorial way of 
understanding war in which women do suffer differently men suffer differently and other genders also suffer differently not talked about and in in the end they all suffer together so i i think that's why we because these are south asian cultures no doubt you know different cultures different religions different ethics and people but at the same time the way war comes to kashmir the way people are uh, experiencing war that's really nuanced that's really cultural that's also in in ways uh, fought back through religion as well like people are very religious like how how they how prayerful they are i'm not talking about the other aspects but people have a different way like women have a different way of fighting this war and in my case study which was the association of parents of disappeared persons <clears throat> i really saw the different hierarchies that women inhabit how they become active against the occupation how they even implement the politics that they have uh, garnered and gleaned in the last uh, 30 years 33 years which is based around mourning so it's basically politics of mourning how they utilize the social norms and kind of like make them into activist norms how their feminine consciousness becomes feminist consciousness uh, and also how their feminine consciousness is feminine co feminist consciousness in the first place so so i think while we need to pay attention to the gendered impacts and gendered experiences <clears throat> i feel like our south asian contexts would also be benefited if we really took a if we did not pit men against the women even inside the situation of war if we really took them as part of the same fabric and how they are the dynamics they share and kind of began from there which is not to say that we have to negate uh, women's very special double bind situations uh, but these have to be parallel processes thank you so much for bringing out all those brilliant points asar i think it's been I have learned so much from the last 10 minutes that you have spoken to us. I think the perspective that you offered is it's so nuanced and it makes me think of so many things that like you said does a post-colonial theory even apply to a context like Kashmir for us? How do different contexts like for example if we talk about the global north then the gendering that might happen of wars there is so different from our South Asian societies and we indeed face wars as communities and other people other communities also might face this but your whole contextualization of how a south asian society faces war it's been so insightful to listen to and something that you said really stood out for me which was yes genders uh, suffer differently in a war like situation and especially when you talked about Kash kashmir but they ultimately suffer together and i was just wondering if you would uh, like to talk to us about how then does the state encourage and benefit from different genders and how do different gender minority groups but also like you said men uh, become agents of war and how does the state actually benefit from it i think the gendering really really benefits the state especially if the state is also portraying uh, um, a sort of a feminist consciousness <laughs> if it can be conscious called consciousness i remember there was this one incident in around 2007 2008 i think the listeners are going to benefit more from concrete examples than theory uh sonia gandhi came to uh, kashmir and she actually addressed women separately and she talked to them as kashmiri sisters who had withstood the violence 
of the Kashmiri armed violence, armed violence, which we call armed struggle. It has a definite colloquial name for it, which is Tehreek, meaning revolution. But the Indian states portrays it as terrorism to the rest of the world. And then Sonia Gandhi had this very specific speech that she talks to. I forget what the, I'm just summarizing, but she was addressing Kashmiri women. She was telling them that you have suffered for the last so many years uh, through this armed violence. And she wasn't talking about military violence. She wasn't talking about the Indian state's violence. She was talking specifically about how women in Kashmir have suffered their own men. So that was kind of like, you know, it was 2007, I think, and that made me think about brown imperial feminism. And there is another, and brown imperial feminism is essentially, so, uh, I know that you inhabit Indian identities, and I have, I, I have complete respect for that. Uh, as, as people belonging to a certain nationality, of course, you should be proud, you should be who you are. But of course, we also have to be humanists more than we have to be patriots in that sense. Uh, so that made me start thinking about brown imperial feminism that a lot of Indian feminists were bringing into Kashmir. Uh, that also made me think about state feminism, the history of state feminism in Kashmir. So <clears throat> when I have been part of a lot of feminist collectives, especially that emerged from India. And when I was younger, I used to be part of these conversations where we thought that, you know, as feminists, as women, we have some solutions. We're going to think about this and we're going to. But um, uh, and then I had some uh, senior activists who would say that this is a very um, this is not going to this is this is to no avail what you're doing with these Indian feminists. But I had to have my own experiences. Right. So what they meant was that there's going to be solidarity, but the solidarity is going to be very selective. It's going to be, it, it will not go beyond a certain point. But I was young and I thought maybe, you know, we can make a difference. These are different feminists. These are not feminists from the older generations. But a decade later, I realized that Indian feminists did really have a very selective solidarity with Kashmiri feminists. And that was that until and unless you, until the point you called Kashmiri problem and the Kashmiri issue as a human rights issue, it was all good. But the moment you said that it's a political dispute <clears throat> and the human rights violations don't occur in a vacuum, they're symbolic of the polit political dispute because Kashmiris are dema demanding certain things, that's why they're being abused. <clears throat> so the moment you talked about political dispute, your paths would become different because they did not want to talk against their own state. So that became very palpable early on. And that's where you can kind of see where the state kind of makes inroads. And I'll give you this very important example, and I think that might tie this answer uh, together. And that is when the Indian state uh, deoperationalized and militarily took away Kashmir's autonomy. One of the reasons that they told the rest of the world is that the special status of Kashmir has, has discriminated against women it was actually able to get away with it. And it told the rest of the world that uh, Kashmir has become this sort of like this virulent autonomous patriarchy, which is cracking down on its women. And it told brazen lies to the rest of the world that because one of the clauses was not clauses, but one of the things that was happening inside Kashmir for a long time, uh, this debate was that what if Kashmiri women married non-Kashmiris? 
what happens to their <clears throat> residency because you know Kashmiris had a permanent residency under the autonomy they were citizens of Kashmir then they also had a citizenry with India for the like they had sort of a dual citizenship so from the 60s onwards what was happening was that women had to produce an unmarried certificate if they had to get a job or something to prove that they were not married to a non-Kashmiri so what happened in case they married a non-Kashmiri? So a lot of people were under the impression that if they married a non-Kashmiri, they lost their dom dominion. They lost their domicile status. But that was not the case. Uh, they still retained their right to property. They still retained their right to franchise. And in 2002, uh, there was a case and the judgment said very categorically and clearly that women do not lose any domicile status. They still retain their permanent residency. And of course, the husband also becomes party to the permanent residency. But the only thing that was unresolved, which was done case by case basis, were property rights. Like who gets that woman's property, that couple's property? It also depends on where children are. If the children are in Kashmir, then it's so there was a committee that was adjudicating this problem on case to case by case basis. And because of red tape, there was no law coming through faster, fast enough. And I don't know if that was even by design. So then the Indian government uses this very thing and dismantles the entire state and says there is discrimination against women. And it's on record. There is a con there's a there's a public repartee happening between uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi and the ex-chief minister of Kashmir, Umar Abdullah, where Umar Abdullah's sister has actually married an, an Indian, a non-Kashmiri. And Modi tells uh, the chief minister of Kashmir that your sister has gotten married, we will take away Article 370 and she can have her rights. And the chief minister, the ex-chief minister, he talks back, uh, publicly of course, through media, and he says, no, no, no such thing has happened, she hasn't lost her status. So you can actually see the fudging that is happening between two, these two very prominent politicians, and the Indian media is actually running with Modi's version. I am by no means in sympathy with the client politician from Kashmir, but I'm just kind of like using this as an example. So the gender discrimination, quote unquote, was actually used as a straw man argument. And this entire state was dismantled with help of Indian feminists who did not raise any question. And I'm using the Indian word, Indian feminist, the phrase very loosely. I don't mean a particular group or but there have been sympathetic feminists who have looked at Kashmir uh, through a lens of uh, pol political dispute and not just as a human right dispute. Of course, that goes without saying. But of course, the largely the, the majority of people of which you, women are also a party and genders, different genders are also a party. They saw this as a gender discrimination. So that has been used. State feminism has been used. A lot of times you see historically people are like, but women, they have like 42%, 50% literacy rate in Kashmir. So how is it even possible? Which means that everything good has happened from 1947 onwards. Women are now in the mainstream and all of that. State feminism was deployed by client politicians in their manifesto. They were actually creating a constituency through women for the Indian government and for integration. So while women were pushed towards literacy, there was it was like they could be doctors, they could be teachers. But they were not encouraged to think for themselves. Like if someone would think for themselves, if someone would question the Indian government, that was 
pure becoming a dissident and they were thrown in jail. There was a solid concerted criminalization. That's not feminism. That's not feminist praxis. So we see state feminism in effect from 1947 onwards, which kind of helps them uh, strengthen the idea of democracy, which actually is not democracy, but weaponization of democratic elements like elections. And then in 2019, we see this brazen use of gender discrimination. And now we see pinkwashing happening inside Kashmir, as if, uh, you know, the rest of uh, the India or other parts of the world are better off than Kashmir. And Kashmir is the only virulent uh, patriarchy. And what also worsens Kashmir's uh, argument is the fact that it's portrayed as, for lack of a better term, it's portrayed as Islamic terrorism, which is such a misnomer that it's Muslim men who have gotten together, created a patriarchy, and they're cracking down on their women. And it becomes very easy in an anti-Islam, in an Islamophobic world for the rest of the world to buy it. So I, th I think that's, that's something um, that we need to consider, how state feminism, how feminism, and how gender discrimination has really been utilized by the Indian state as weapons against Kashmiris. Thank you for that, Athar. And I think uh, that just brings me to my last question for you, which is, um, what do you see the role of, of, of women particularly as, as in, in, in the peace building movement, as peacemakers in such situations as well? Uh, what do you think is that role? How has that been shaped? How has that influenced uh, situations of violence in the past, but also now? I think after 2019, um, so women as peacemakers and peace builders, again, I think it really takes a society a long time to realize that, especially in Kashmir, if I, I call Kashmir a working class patriarchy, and I think most of the South Asia is a working class patriarchy, where women actually are um, working alongside men, you know, they are they're, they're selling fish, they are baking, they are uh, street food vendors. So it's not as if our women, you, you know, that's where I kind of like push people and push myself to think with less Eurocentrism because our societies have never been uh, different uh, in that sense uh, where they have kept women from the public life. Women have been part of the economic strata all along. It's just that socially they have inhabited a place where they were always secondary, always a lower rung, which is also true for the West. But going back to your question, um, how do we see women as peacemakers in a situation like Kashmir? I would say I would I I really don't have a clear-cut answer for that because I feel like women have been trying inside Kashmir for the last 74 years be side by side with men and have an equal say if even if not an equal contribution and an equal share at the table where the negotiations happen but they have been try, trying to be in a supplementary role in a complementary role in the role of even playing chaperones to men because you know men are disappeared killed immediately and if uh, the women in Kashmir for the last 33, 34 years have been chaperones of their men if a man goes out a mother or a sister will go along so that he's not immediately killed uh, if they are walking in the street they're seen as um, they're seen as a family uh, which also is not a guarantee of safety you know women are raped women are killed so they have other uh, issues that occur to them so there is so women's movement or activism or role in peacemaking I don't don't really see it uh, 
I don't see it separately, but I do see women getting together and forming a movement which of which the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons is a one big great example. But again, we can't really look at it only from the lens of being a woman's movement because these are mothers and these are wives who are called the half-widows for lack of a better term because they didn't know whether their husbands are dead or alive, whether they're going to turn up or what, so they're called half-widows. This movement has is, has become formidable, even if after 2019 they're not able to protest much because protesting has been criminalized inside Kashmir. We see a lot of support that men gave them so that they could form this movement. The co-founder of the movement is a pro bono human rights lawyer. The men, or the men from these families, they help women with paperwork. They help women in learning the legal ways and courts and police and whatever the processes were. It was just that they could not come to the forefront and protest like the women were because the women were initially allowed to protest because they were just seen as women, you know? They also do not, uh, they don't uh, inhabit an equal hierarchy with the with the occupation forces because they see them as just women. So they can gather together and do a sit-in and do a small protest because they're just seen as mothers, they're just seen as wives, what are they going to do? But the moment it's a group of men who are protesting, they're seen as a threat. So there have been several massacres where men came out and protest. Gaukadal massacre from 1991, which was actually done to protest uh, sexual molestation and rape. Um, and uh, so you kind of see them being directly, uh, it became a massacre. They were directly uh, shot at and uh, the soldiers surrounded them and killed them, killed a lot of men uh, in that uh, protest. But with women, it usually became this kind of a thing where they would get together and they would protest and then they would, you know, raise a little hue and cry, do politics of mourning, basically mourning and crying and utilizing the symbols of their social uh, mores that were already present, which was mourning, and kind of like doing fashioning their protests like that. So, so in that, again, what we see is that women are protesting, they are being activists, they are trying to push the social envelope as well as deal with the politics of occupation. But at the same time, I would remind the listeners and I would also kind of like, you know, try to just uh, stand in the fact that we are close-knit societies. We don't really, we, we can't really have our movements separately. And I think that's that's where we kind of like, that's what I think when I, th that's what I think when I think about peacemaking in Kashmir. And again, what does the word, word peacemaking do in Kashmir? There can be no peacemaking unless the political dispute is gone. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's a post-conflict society. I'm like, no, it's not. one, it's not just a conflict because conflict is ambiguity, like between two people, three people, like a conflict. No, this is a disputed territory where people have their own, um, they have their own uh, demands and you have to listen to them. It's not just something that's happening between two countries. So how do we think about peacemaking when we think about Kashmir without <clears throat> without thinking that the political dispute has to be solved? And if we do not have 100% uh, genuineness in solving the political dispute, we are paying merely lip service to settling women's issues and to settling men's issues and to settling the issues of other genders on the gender spectrum. So that's something that I would really foreground. Thank you so much, Athar. I think it's been it's been incredible listening to you talk about 
all things from weaponization of democracy about situating war and peace and community in our south asian societies and also assessing the situation of kashmir over the past decades i think we are all taking a lot and i think i'll speak for uh, our listeners as well that it's been a truly insightful experience to listen to you today thank you so much for that and before we close uh, i would like to ask you if you have any closing thoughts on the conversation that you'd like to share with us yeah i don't i don't know what i have to flag but um i i do want us to kind of uh, take this moment this conversation when we're thinking about kashmir per se I also want to uh, draw the listeners attention to the fact that from 1947 onwards most of us have been coerced into following a pattern of living whether that be political whether that be cultural whether that be economic this was left to us by the fleeing colonial powers and I do want us to think through the lens of neocolonialism I I don't think when I think about India I don't really think about through the lens of postcolonialism I think it's a neocolonial power and not just think I know it behaves and it has the heart of a neocolonial power it's an imperial power that was left in place and not just uh, as countries as quote unquote democracies that have been imported to our places these are settler democracies because if we think about let's say uh, united states united states is democracy to whom it's not democracy to indigenous people who were whose genocide is still so unknown to people in our part of the world that we still come to america thinking this is the bastion of democracy but this is a <coughs> democracy for a group of people for for the white settlers who came here this is their democracy but not the indigenous people and this is the democracy that is imported to the rest of the world which is why you see so much dispossession happening in india currently of the indigenous people of dalits of the marginalized of quote unquote minorities who are not minorities indi in muslims are not minorities 200 million people how do you of course like relatively but you don't call them minorities and push them into ghettos and say that that's where you stay so i think when we are thinking about kashmir I would urge your generation I would urge the generation that's listening to podcasts and the generation that is coming I would really urge us to look at uh not through postcolonialism but through the lens of neocolonial neocolonialism and neoliberalism and then think about issues like Kashmir and see how simple they are they're not intractable solution problems they're really solvable problems if you get out of the mindset like what if kashmir is granted independence what happens after that i mean nothing is going to happen and then start thinking about extra uh, you know extractionism and thinking about neoliberalism which really wants kashmir for all the resources the water and all kinds of minerals and now you also have lithium mines and what is ha- what has been happening after 2019 is really really an uh, extractionist economy that is cracking down on kashmir it has less to do with nations and nationalism which it's more to do with neoliberal uh extractionist policies which is creating ecocide so i think that's something that i would ask uh, us to keep in mind uh, to broaden our horizons and not just look through prestige issues of prestige and 
Kashmir being the crown of India and all of that, uh, but really look at it through the eyes of future rather than past. Thank you so much, Athar, for taking the time out to have this conversation with us. Um, I definitely feel like you've given us a lot to think about, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts to go back and to be discussing in our micro communities with each other. Um, so from my end, just a very big thank you for taking the time out to do this. Thank you for tuning in today. Please leave us any questions you may have as voice notes on Anchor or in our DMs. We would love to hear from you. This podcast is brought to you by One Future Collective. Yes, thank you so much. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at One Future Collective and at One Future underscore India on Twitter. And keep an eye out for future episodes out every second and fourth Thursday of the month. Until next time.